Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Present Fathers podcast. This episode is going to be a little bit different than our typical uh, having a guest type of format. Over the next coming months, we're going to be doing our own personal stories and sharing them with you so that you can better know our background and, and why we are so passionate about uh, being the best dads possible and being the best husbands possible. So we're going to start with me. Uh, this is George from the group speaking. And um, in my story, this first, this first part of the episode is going to be kind of the narration of my story, everything that kind of happened through my childhood and my marriage and uh, kind of getting up to where we are today. And then part two will be more focused on kind of how uh, I grew from those mistakes that I've made and how I've made amends for the things that went wrong. So in this first part, buckle up. It's pretty intense, pretty heavy, um, but it's going to give you a lot of context for um, the lessons learned that are going to come in part two. So we hope that you enjoy this. I hope that you learn from it. And my personal plea to you is that, um, you know, if you think that this, my story would help someone and that they can learn from my mistakes, that you share it with them. Uh, and then for the podcast, if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, the biggest thing you can do right now would be simply to just share the episode or go onto your favorite platform of choice, whether that is uh, a podcast platform or YouTube directly and like the channel, uh, subscribe to the channel and leave us a review. So without further ado, we'll get into the episode and just want to thank you all for all the continued support. And we hope that this uh, you know, journey of our personal stories helps uh, benefit you and, and those around you. Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is the show that focuses on climbing the mountain of fatherhood together. We believe that dads matter. That's why this show is for you. So gear up, dads. Get ready. It's time to start climbing. Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is a special episode in a sense that we don't have a guest, and uh, the guest is technically me. We're going to interview me today. So uh, with that said, I'm going to kick it over to my capable co-host, Brandon, and he will start our episode. Yes, yes. Uh, welcome, George. Uh, I'm excited to interview you Thanks today. for having me, dude. It's so good to yeah. be here on the podcast. <laughs> I'm so pumped. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're glad to have you. Well, listen, um, so for the audience, um, we've all, as fathers who have, have dedicated our, our lives to our families and to our wives, have worked very hard um, through through a lot of trauma, through a lot of pain. So what we're gonna do today is we're basically gonna go through uh, a lot of things chronologically. So uh, George, let's start with uh, your childhood and let's let's kind of dive into that and see how that's affected your, your journey as a father. Yeah, man, so I'm the oldest of three. Uh, I was born in 88, so dating myself there right off the get. But uh, I was born in Vienna, Austria, and my brother was born there too. He's two and a half years behind me. And um, my parents decided they wanted to move back to the States to raise us in America. So we moved to Oregon when I was, you know, three and change. Um, and my early childhood, you know, I remember really fondly. Like, I remember, you know, we had this little apartment we lived in and, you know, we'd go to the pool and all that kind of stuff. And I just remember playing outside a lot. Um, and uh, eventually we moved to a house uh, kind of on the other side of town. And then my sister was born shortly after. So she's five years younger than me. Um, and yeah, I mean, like things are good. I just have all these fond memories of playing in the cul-de-sac with all the other neighborhood kids, you know, we'd ride bikes and we'd all pretend we were like, you know, BMX, you know, racers and stuff like super, you know, super awesome people were probably going like a mile an hour, you know, but we'd, we'd make little jumps and stuff. <laughs> we were way into like skateboarding and, and biking and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
you know, I really look back on it with like really fond memories. And uh, so it's kind of like my early childhood. I was always playing a million sports. I got into Taekwondo super competitively. Um, you know, I did really well in school academically, uh, but I had like so much energy. I was always getting in trouble, you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, couldn't, I couldn't stop talking. Surprise. But uh, <laughs> yeah, my early childhood was honestly pretty good. And it was when I got, I'm going to say more like seventh, eighth grade age is when I kind of started picking up on like, mm, there seems to be like a lot of tension around the house a lot of the time. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the only thing I can equate it to is like, you know, how, how, traditionally like children of alcoholics are like very uh i don't know codependence the right word but like they they walk on eggshells and they're very in tune to like emotional cues and things like that right i got like really smart at all that just because of like all that tension that existed in the home but i don't really think i had any idea what was really going on like i didn't know like you you just assume your parents have a great marriage and everything's you know hunky-dory and we went to church and all that kind of stuff and uh we even went to a christian school and so you know we're doing all the right things and um but uh yeah i mean if when i look back on it and of course it's it's hard to remember every little thing about your life but sure. uh i was really small like super small like my joke nickname in basketball was mighty mouse and stuff so i was like by my freshman year 100 pounds and five feet tall so <laughs> you know i was just a dominant force on the court you know but uh so you know like but as a as a teenage boy that was obviously like that, I struggled with that, um, just feeling so small and, like, not masculine, you know, and, like, all, all, the, all the other dudes were already getting beards and, like, you know, huge. They were, like, six feet tall and stuff. And uh, so, like, I had a lot of insecurity, um, and I think it was amplified, too, by, like, my home life. And we'll, we'll get to that later, but, sure. uh, yeah, I want to kind of pause there just to, like, if you want to cover any early childhood stuff. But, like, yeah. really the, the bulk of the story kind of starts in high school, so I'll, I'll give it a break here. So obviously, since you came from Austria, you're you're Arnold Schwarzenegger's child. I've, I've, I've used that. Uh, no, no, no relation, unfortunately. My uh, my my dad grew up in the Midwest, uh, and my mom grew up on the West Coast. Uh, they're you know Americans through and through for a long, 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 long time. And uh, my dad played in the Vienna Symphony. So yeah, oh, I wish awesome. I could claim that I had some relation to Arnold because uh, then we could get him on the podcast. But um, no, I'm, I was just uh, an American citizen born abroad. Now, you, you say there was a lot of attention um, in the house. Was that between your parents, or was that between you and your siblings? Or It was kind of all, all around. Um, everything was very intense. Like I just, and when I look back and like remember, like everything felt life and death. Like, you got to be on an assignment, you're in trouble. Like, you know what I mean? Like, everything had massive consequences to it. Um, and so I became a very intense individual. I'm, I'm, I know you guys are shocked, right? But, uh... oh, man, where did that come from? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I really do think a lot of that was a, a little bit of it's just kind of a Hayworth thing, but it, it is also, I think, environmental um, because any failure or any like misbehavior was like severely punished. So like, you know, there was a lot of discipline, um, a lot of tough love. And I don't think my parent, you know, I think my parents genuinely were trying to do their best. So like it's, it's really easy to try and nitpick your parents and stuff in hindsight you know, and then as you age too, you gain empathy for your parents, really realizing that they're people with wounds too, right? And I think my parents both had a lot of wounds from their lives uh, that never really got addressed. And we've learned a lot more about this stuff too. So like, we have a lot more advantages to work through this crap that they probably never had. So 
everything I'm about to say about my story, like it's painful. There's a lot of things that I wish didn't happen. And I just want to make it clear up front. Like I love my parents. Um, there's a lot of things I really didn't love about how things went down. But at the end of the day, like I, I genuinely believe that they were doing their best. Hmm. Um, and there was a lot of things, just a lot of complicated things that like, I don't know if anyone has an answer for. So, um, but back to the intensity, just, you know, I mean, think about it. Your, I don't know what your home life was growing up, but if like every little thing you did wrong was kind of nitpicked or you got in trouble for, mm-hmm. like you learn to like really get hyper aware of everything. So you're just like yeah. in a constant state of almost fight or flight. Um, and I was that way. Uh, it, it made me really good at school, right? That's why I got good grades and like I did really good in sports because the same thing, right? I was like super disciplined and never strayed from like what the coach said and, you know, just worked my butt off and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but outside of that, like I was really bad at making friends because mm. I was just too intense and like, you know, I would call people out on their crap all the time. And it's like, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, you can't yeah. just tell people that they're wrong to their face. Um, but that's how my household was. And so I would do it everywhere. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was just a very confrontational person um, in, a, in a very bad way. It was, it was never out of like, it was always like me trying to protect myself, you know? So it's from like a position of woundedness. It wasn't, I'm trying to help someone be better. You know what I mean? So right. hopefully that answers that question. So um, what did that experience teach you as a father now that you feel like you can do better as a father than the experiences you had. Yeah. Basically just chilling out, you know, like it's, it's not realistic to live your life as like everything is life and death, you know, cause it's not hardly anything is actually life and death. You know, we worry about so many things that really aren't a big deal. And I was, so I was cutting reels today too. And that's like Barton said that in, in our episode recently where they were like going to church and his daughter didn't have shoes on or whatever. And he was like freaking out about, Oh, people are going to judge us and all that kind of stuff. And then his other daughter was like, well, I'm going to take my shoes off then too. So that, you know, she has someone like her, you know? And, and he was just like, man, like straight. And then like, I felt so guilty hearing that. Cause I'm like, man, how many times have I been just as intense about stuff that doesn't matter with my yeah. own kid? So, you know, that's been an area of growth for me for sure. Uh, and not just as a father, also as a husband, right? Like you can't treat your wife like that intense all the time, you know, like she's your wife, not, <laughs> it's a very different relationship from every way you interact with anyone else. So, um, yeah, in, in short, just to gain the perspective that most things are really not that serious mm-hmm. and most things, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable or annoying in the moment is a great chance to like teach your kids something and learn a lesson. And if you respond to it with calmness and stoicism and compassion and kind of, teach the your child the lesson from the event they may never do it again right and then they'll carry that forward and yeah so that's such a good point because because if you want your child to listen authoritarianism and the the over critical criticalness is not going to ever reach them what's going to reach them and make them want to listen and is going to train them to listen the proper way is going to be connection right Mm -hmm. and so from what I hear, your, your parents are very authoritarian. And then obviously the military was for you as well. So you, I'm sure that, that kind of, yeah, I'm sure that kind of stacked up, you know, going into things. So, but yeah. bear in mind as well that the, uh, the opposite of that apathy is probably even worse. And I would imagine that most dads in America for fear of appearing authoritarian lean towards apathy, mm-hmm. right? I, I can't really discipline my kid because I'll get in trouble for that. 
Um, so I'm just going to check out and not pay attention to it because I can't emotionally handle this. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you know, it, there, there is an upside to intensity as well. That's yeah. True. Yeah. I mean, it's balance in all things. Brandon, you're writing a book on balance. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's, and I, I want to quote Nick Freitas too, like the example he gave about his dad, you know, the side of his dad that he, that only the bad guys see. Like, I think that's something for us to really, really hone in on is you, and it's like the alter ego effect, right? You've got to be a different guy in different settings, right? With your kids, you're not the same guy that you are at work. You're not the same guy where you're, you're seeing something traumatic happening on the street and you're trying to save people's lives or whatever, right? Like it's, you have to be a different person in those different, and that's not disingenuous to your character. That's, that's what the situation requires, like that we all need to adapt in those ways. So, you know, that was, um, being raised that way, I went into every, I approached everything in my life in that same manner. And so, you know, I look back on it and uh, just in all these things I did throughout my life, I made a lot of enemies unnecessarily. Um, you know, if I would have had uh, been coached, but I don't know what it is. Like if I would have just been given a different chance to learn this lesson sooner, um, I think my life would have been a lot easier. I, like I made a lot of enemies of my own doing and it so made my own life a lot harder in a lot of places. And so that's like kind of just like the word of caution to people is there, you know, drive and setting goals and all those kinds of things are very, very good, but you need to temper it with, um, like the perspective of in, in the current moment, like, do I need to be this intense or do I need to talk to this person in that way? And, and I didn't learn that until really like now, <laughs> you know, like way too late. So, um, so quick, quick question, um, in your childhood, which was your was your dad gone a lot? Did he do a lot of traveling or was he emotionally present or uh, like, did you lean on him when you had issues arise? Like with this, this kind of stuff that you're describing? Mm. Um, I think my dad struggled emotionally connecting mm. because he had a very strained relationship with his own father. And I think he never really learned how, um, when he was a young dad, this is, you know, our relationship today is drastically different. We did a whole episode on it. Right. But, um, I think he had a lot of anger and pain and a lot of things that frustrated him that he didn't know how to deal with. And so that, that a lot of the intensity came from him too. Like it was, you know, he was quick to anger. Um, you know, things would set him off quick. And I think it's just because he was, there was so much on his plate. He was just so overwhelmed that like, you know, the kids was just like the straw that broke the camel's back type of thing. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, he regrets that heavily. And I look back on it with a, an extreme amount of empathy for it. Like I'm not angry or bitter about like how my dad treated us or any of that kind of stuff. He was, he was there present. I mean, he, he worked very hard. Like he started his own business when we moved back to the States, uh, to feed us. And so he worked hard all day, you know, manual labor. Um, and, but he would still like do his best to like be at all our games and we'd play catch, all that kind of stuff. He was outside with us. So despite the intensity of the way that our dynamic, our family dynamic was, I still have a, a ton of extremely fond memories of my dad and I've always loved him. Um, especially when I was a kid, you know, I mean like what, what young boy doesn't love their dad, you know? So, um, I, if I, if I weigh it all up, right, sum it all up with everything that was stacked against him. I think he did a pretty dang good job, to be honest. Um, my mom, too. Uh, you know, we'll get into that a little bit more. I think with that, that one is a little bit more complicated for me. Um, 
just because my dad and I have been able to talk about these things and genuinely reconcile them. And I haven't had that opportunity with my mom. Um, and that it, it would, it'll be very complicated to hopefully get to a point like that one day. Um, we're not there yet. So, um, you know, I, I, I say none of this again to like grieve my parents or to wound them or any of that kind of stuff. I think, uh, life is hard. Life is complicated. And they had a lot of things that happened to them and around them that, uh, I think set them up for failure. So, George, do you can you tell us your first memory with your dad? How old were you, and what was the memory? I remember like being about three years old. Uh, no, uh, yeah, three years old. We had moved to the states. I don't remember like moving. I vaguely, like in my mind's eye, I can see the apartment we lived in in Vienna, but I don't really remember doing anything there. Uh, so I remember like being at our first apartment in Oregon and like running around outside. Um, and going to the pool, there was like a pool, a, a, you know, the uh, apartment complex pool. So in the summer, I remember like swimming from a very young age and I had like no fear. So I would just like dive into the deep end. I'm sure my parents really loved that. But um, yeah, <laughs> and that was back in the day. We were like into the crappy floaties that didn't really do anything. So I was like, bro, I learned how to swim just by like YOLO. So I, I remember that apartment uh, relatively well. I, and, and my grandparents lived in the same complex. And so like we would spend a lot of time together. So those are probably like my first vivid memories that I can like, I could paint a picture of it for you, you know? Now, now your grandparents, you mentioned them. Um, were they very present in your life? Did they have a big impact uh, specifically your grandfather? Yeah, they, they were probably too present. Um, so at some point my, my mom's parents, my grandparents, uh, we call them Papa and Oma. They moved in with us. And so this is where like things started getting really messy. I think I think my dad was essentially removed from being the head of his own household. Um, oh wow! You know, I mean, just imagine every argument you have with your wife or have had with your wife, and then she turns to her dad and say, "Well, what do you think, Dad?" Oh man! <laughs> you know, that's that's a pretty messed up dynamic. So yeah. that that was definitely happening in in my early life, and I forget exactly how old I was when that happened. Maybe f I was four, five. Like it was pretty early on. So. Um, yeah, they, they lived in the same home with us, and I think that was probably an extremely bad thing. Um, I, don't, I don't know all the reasons why, but I can tell you right now, like, if, unless it was an issue of, like, a, a medical health issue where we needed to care for, you know, my in-laws or something like that, like, I would never entertain that idea because it's like, this is my family. Like, it's, you know, <laughs> there's... It's not healthy when like the wife is turning to her dad to like come in between her and her husband. You know, it's just it's just objectively not good. So I think that was happening a lot. Like I don't remember seeing it a ton, but I'm sure that my dad was just like, I don't even know what to do with this, you know. Like I can imagine how frustrating that is. So um in the interest of time, I think maybe let's like skip ahead a little bit to to like my high school years. Um my freshman years when like things were obviously not good anymore. Um my my mom was convinced that my dad was an alcoholic in hindsight absolutely not he wasn't um i think he dr drank less probably than most dads ever do <laughs> if i'm if i'm honest um but she i don't know if it was just cuz she could weaponize him against him or something but uh yeah she like basically kicked him out of the house uh she got the elders of the church to like be there and basically say like you need to go to rehab um so he did 
And I think he did because I think he wanted to still be our dad and not have to leave. Um, so I guess he just thought, well, I, this is just something I'm after to just grit my way through and it's stupid, but I'm going to do it. And then that way I can move, be back home with my family. Um, but I mean, I was 15 at the time and I would just remember being like, holy crap, we're one of those families. Like, you know, you hear about them, you know, kids who have parents who are divorced and stuff, but like, wow, now I'm one of them. So I just remember being like really bewildered. Um, just stunned kind of like how could this happen to us you know uh <clears throat> and just being really like I, I felt conflicted about like every feeling I had like I'd be happy my dad was coming back but then like concerned and you know I mean just like so every every emotion had like a flip side and and I they would all hit me at the same time so I didn't know what to do with any of it and man I needed to like talk to my brother and stuff too about like how they handle all that they were a little bit younger of course but I just had too much awareness about what was really going on. So fast forward a little bit to, you know, my dad did the rehab thing, came back and they like tried to work it out, I guess a little bit, but it didn't. <laughs> and uh, so they separated again and got divorced. And if, if I remember correctly, I want to say that their like divorce officially went through on my 16th birthday or like a day or two after it was almost exactly like the same timeline. So that just like exploded my whole world, you know? Um, I almost think it would have been easier if I was like 10 years younger <laughs> as like weird as that is to say but it's like I just knew too much at that point and like knowing all these things and then it happening was just kind of like my sophomore year of high school I basically just like didn't care about virtually anything um, like my grades all dipped even in classes, like, man, I was such a terrible student that year. I like, I, if I could just go back and shake that kid, I'd slap him silly. But like, I would like literally listen to my headphones with my CD player in class. And like, I'm sure the teacher would look at me and be like, what a piece of crap, you know? Um, but I just like, I, I couldn't be bothered to care about, like, I would just do the bare minimum, pass all my stuff. Somehow still got like mostly B's all year. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I can't remember what sports I was playing at the time, but I, you know, I kind of cut back on sports too. Like I just like hung out with my friends all the time because I don't want to be home. I had a driver's license now, had my first girlfriend, all that kind of stuff. So like I was like never home at this point uh, just because I didn't want to be home. And I think a lot of people can relate to that for a lot of reasons. So I'll pause there. Yeah, so you were, you were saying um, that they got divorced pretty much on your 16th birthday. Obviously with the awareness there, was there any, because they say that when, when a parent divorces another parent, the, the children usually put the blame on themselves. So did you feel like mm. it was your fault or was there any? No. So like, this is where it's going to start getting pretty messy. Uh, you know, my mother vocalized a lot. Um, and, you know, so I was led to believe that like my dad was the cause of all of it. It's all his fault. So I got super angry at my dad. Um, and in hindsight, it's all, it was like all unjustified anger. So that <laughs> we're, there's gonna be a lot, buckle up kids. We're, we're going to have a lot to unpack here, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah. So I was, I was just basically pissed off for like years on end. You know, I was a very angry teenager. Um, and it was all directed at my dad and I don't want to go too far in the weeds. I want to, I want to circle back to this later, but sure. this is when like my mom would start telling me things like, intimate details about what went wrong 
or you know what my dad's doing and what and all this kind of stuff and like details of their court case and all this kind of stuff because you're older George you can handle it you're more mature you're such a mature 16 year old you know and you know you're a young man now and all this kind of stuff and so like that was the norm and it like in the moment felt kind of cool because like oh yeah I'm the man of the house now you know but then even that kind of way of thinking you immediately your subconscious is kind of like but you're not your dad should be the man of the house you know so Man, it messed me up, especially from a point of like growing into manhood. I just stopped right there. So like I got stuck at 16, you know, and uh, emotionally and, and the way I thought about the world, you know, as I aged still, uh, you know, into physical manhood, I was still just, you know, a pissed off, hurt 16 year old boy inside. Um, so I kind of got things back on track my junior year, like, you know, got my grades back up and it was through this time, like I'd always been interested in the military. Um, I was like, man, it'd be so cool to do something in the military. But I was thinking like, maybe I'll be a doctor or something. But then my, my sophomore, junior year, I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I want to do like something real, you know? So I'm like, I like, I want to be in the army. And I just like picked it. Like I didn't even like really research anything. I was just like, the army just sounds like tougher than everything else. You know, I've kn I knew virtually nothing other than like what you see in movies, you know? And like, I'd gone to some stuff where you see recruiters, like, like, you know, the, the county fair or whatever, but like that was that's my extent. That was my extent of like military knowledge. No one in my be family. Be all you can be. <laughs> yeah, be all you can be, man. That, so that is the best slogan the army's ever had. I think they've actually brought it back. And uh, you know, that's a it's a good that's a good motto for life too. Be all you can be. Um, but yeah, so I picked the army and I was like, well, I want to you know I want to go to college, so I'll do ROTC. And like it was also kind of like told to me like you're going to go to college. You know, I don't. <laughs> I would have had a hard. I would have had to like run away from home to go enlist, and I didn't even know the difference to be honest. I just thought it was normal to like want to go to school and do ROTC and like, oh yeah, so I'll be an officer. All right, whatever that means, you know. Like, <laughs> so I probably should have done a little bit more, you know, self education. But I just knew I wanted to do something tough and challenging that mattered and was like, you know, gave me purpose um, and would get me away from home. <laughs> to be blunt, so. At the time, I was super idealistic to the intensity, right? And uh, like, what, what's a higher what's a higher thing than serving your country, right? So for me, that was like the pinnacle of what I can make out of my life. So I applied to ROTC. Uh, you know, it's a very long process to get like a four year scholarship. So I started that my junior year. Got my, you know, now now I had like a purpose again. So like, I started doing really good in school, taking tons of AP classes, and like everything in my life was centered around like, I didn't party. I didn't do anything. Cause I'm like, I can't jeopardize getting a scholarship. I can't, this is my one way to get to school. This is my one way to do the job I want to do. So like I went like to autistic levels of not doing the wrong things ever <laughs> to make sure that like my resume looked as perfect as possible so that I could get a scholarship. Um, so yeah, I was kind of that weird guy, junior, senior year. I'm sure people thought like this dude's weird. Like he won't, he's just not like chill, you know? <laughs> and, uh, it worked out, I guess, for me because I got my four-year scholarship and, you know, graduated high school. And at that point, I was feeling like, man, I'm, t I'm on the top of the world now, you know, like I've got my whole life ahead of me. I'll be going to school. And uh, highly, I was pretty optimistic at this point, you know. So I, I don't, I'll pause here because I know I've covered a little bit there. Do you, do you think some of the challenges you had with your mom has affected your relationships with other women? Do you think it affected your ability to trust women, 100%. for example? Yeah. Like 10,000%. Yeah. yeah. So we'll get to that. We're going to, okay. <clears throat> let's walk through a little bit more of like getting into adulthood now. Um, 
I was gonna say let's and talk really, army. Let's let's you, yeah you know, yeah. So armies, let's talk about that. Yeah, so ROTC um, is kind of like my first, you know, very watered down taste of the military. It's so low speed. Like I, I thought I was gonna be like jumping out of planes and like kicking in doors and like shooting people in the face like right away, you know. And then you get there and like we didn't touch a rifle for like three months, and I was like, what the heck is this crap? Like I wanted to be in the army, you know, like I want to go kill things, you know, I want to blow stuff up and. So I was like pretty disappointed to be honest, but but I was like, you know, play the game. I got real good at playing the game of school and I was like this is just another game. It's just a means to an end. Do really well. Um So yeah, on paper I did really well. Still tiny, like super tiny. Like I went to airborne school in 2009. Um which so it felt good cuz you had to like earn a slot. There's like very very few slots and you had to be like one of the best to get a slot. And I got one. So I was like, okay, you know, maybe I am pretty good at this stuff. That, that felt pretty, in that moment, it sounds really stupid, I'm sure, to a lot of people, but, like, I had had so much self-doubt and, like, uh, feeling insignificant and weak and tiny and small that, like, hey, I earned a slot to go to Army Airborne School. and Everyone loves paratroopers. Everyone knows what the 101st is and all that kind of stuff. You know, you've seen Band of Brothers. So I was like, that's freaking awesome, you know, let's go. So that was my first taste of, like, the actual Army. Um, and it was a little intimidating because I was 130 pounds. I'm a cadet, which is like lower than a private when you're in the actual army. And, uh, like, you know, you have the stupid ROTC patch on your arm and stuff. And like, people are like, what are you? Like, what is this? Because most soldiers don't know what that is. You know, they, they're in the actual army. And, uh, my whole stick, my whole squad of jumpers pretty much was a bunch of cadets from all over the country and a bunch of Marine Force Recon guys. So, like, a bunch of guys like Nick Kumalatsos, just all in a line. And then there's a bunch of tiny college cadets. And there's this one dude who was, like, 6'6", just shredded, like, not an ounce of body fat on him. And he looked at me and goes, what the heck are you? And I was like, uh, I'm a cadet sergeant. And he was like, what the hell is a cadet? You know, and I was like, I had to explain it to him. And he was like, oh, okay, stay out of my way. And I was like, yes, sergeant. You know, and I was like, this guy's going to eat me for breakfast, you know, but... Uh, no, I, he was actually a really cool dude. I think he was just kind of like, he, he knew what he was doing and kind of just messing with me. But, uh, anyway, that was awesome because like, I got to do something real finally in the army. And I was like, all right, this, this stuff's awesome. And then, uh, fast forwarding a graduate commission, um, got commissioned as a field artillery officer and, uh, went to Fort Sill for my basic course. And, uh, this is where like, I got my first real like wake up call about like, um, slow down there kid you're you're not as hot as you think you are um so i did really well in basic course and did the pre-ranger program because in my head i was like well i've i have no ex prior experience i've got nothing to show for it um like i have to go to ranger school i can't i can't show up and then lead soldiers and not have done everything i can do to like prove that i'll do whatever it takes to be the best right and i needed the validation of like yeah, I'm a ranger, man. I'm a hard man, you know, like not for the weak or faint hearted. That's what it says on the gates to ranger school, you know? And, uh, so it wasn't even like an option that I wasn't going to do it. So I did the pre-ranger program again, highly selective. There was like 50 dudes who started and only 10 of us got slots, I think. So, um, and you have to like do the whole thing. So it's like five months of just getting the crap beat out of you, <laughs> but I was in great shape. I was in really good shape. Probably the best I've ever been. Um, and I prepared really hard for it. I thought I knew, like, I was ready and all that kind of stuff and uh, get there. And, um, man, I failed the land nav, which is, like, super embarrassing.
for it's like the the meme is lieutenants can't land nav and i was actually pretty good at land nav which is like why i was just like what the heck is going on here like i've never done this poorly like because in oregon you're land naving on like mountains and forests like all i knew was very difficult land nav like we actually got trained very well in rotc compared to like probably most places but uh (laughs) yeah man so i'm just sitting there now and i'm like on the on the Humvee back to like the main area and they're like, all right, you're all the dropouts, you know, you're all the losers, but we're going to keep you around for eight hours to pick up trash and pick weeds out of the, the area. And I'm just sitting there doing all this menial tasks thinking like my career's already over and it hasn't even started. Um, I'm going to show up. The unit knows I'm delayed at getting there cause I'm here. Like they have to know cause there's orders cut and everything. And I'm going to show up and they're going to be like, Oh, what a loser. Like this guy went and failed first week. And I was just like absolutely crushed in my head. I was like, you know, it was the most disastrous thing that's ever happened to me. It was worse than my parents getting divorced. <laughs> and, uh, so I swall, I, you know, I kind of just thought about it a little bit. So I had a long drive to get from Fort Benning back to Fort Campbell. Um, and uh, had a long time to think about it. And I, I realized like, okay, you know what? This sucks. And I just need to own. And if someone asks, I just need to be honest. Nope, I failed and just say nothing more and just own it and just shut up and listen. So it was an extremely humbling experience that I 1000% needed. And like, I legitimately think that it was a God thing. Like he was like, you're going to fail this test because you've got to learn this lesson. And I I'm convinced because like it was, uh, it was really shocking to me that like, that's what I failed. Like if I would have like broke my ankle or something, like I would have been like, okay with it. But, uh, yeah, dude, it was like mega embarrassing and something I had to like work through. But, um, so I got to the unit and um, we deployed like three months later. So things happened very fast. Um, and so let me pause before the deployment stuff. But uh, I just want to like double tap on failure um, because it, it's gonna, you're going to hear like the so what of it too when I talk about deployment. But like failure is not fatal. Um, and like I look back on that failure and not, not be, I, like never went back to ranger school. I never got a tab. So I'm not a ranger. Um, and that hurts a little bit, you know, but the lesson I needed to learn was more valuable than that tab ever would have been. And that lesson was that everything is earned. Nothing is given. You're not special. Um, and at the end of the day, it doesn't have to define you either. Um, me failing was probably the best thing for me because it forced me to grow and to humble myself, emphasis on humble myself and just work really hard to be better. And, uh, that's what I did. So I'll pause there. Yeah. If we don't humble ourselves, life will humble us. I've been there plenty of times and, uh, had, had that experience recently. Um, and yeah. it is wonderful. It, it is such an opportunity for growth. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his uh, new book, um, be useful talks about failure for an entire chapter and what a wonderful teacher it is and how it's an opportunity and how literally when you're lifting weights, when you fail, that is what causes you to grow. Right. Yeah. And so, I'm, I'm also glad to hear that you had that experience because yeah, maybe you, um, you know, you go to ranger school and you never, you know, kind of have that experience of failure and you wouldn't be the man you are today. So I think in a lot of ways it was a defining. Oh yeah. If I would have, if I would have made it through, even if I had to recycle a time or two, I would have been like, I'm a ranger. You know, I would have showed up like, look, I know you guys are deployed multiple times, but I'm a ranger. Okay. Like I would have been that guy. Cause I was, I was a scared, hurt 16 year old kid in an army uniform pretending he was a man. And, uh, you know, that, that's like my story is inside. It was always like, if they only knew, you know, 
like people like oh you're so capable or whatever like, let's say all these things yeah, you've done really well at this thing and then deep down you're just like you don't believe yourself because you're like if you only knew so yeah i needed that lesson a million percent <laughs> um so a couple couple of collateral advantages of failing when i did is i got to make the deployment um, which is something that i definitely wanted to do because uh, if i would have stayed in school they would have all deployed probably when i was still in school and uh who knows what would have happened like if they would have forward deployed me late or whatever i don't know um but i might have missed the boat you know and uh and i met my wife so i don't know if i would have met my wife if i hadn't failed because just the way the timeline worked you know we happened to have our first date um you know about a month and a half before we deployed so again if i was in ranger school i wouldn't have been there to to meet my wife and <laughs> well at the time you know this girl that i thought was awesome and wanted to date um, but yeah, so, you know, it, it sucked, but, uh, in, in the grand scheme of life, it was, uh, just a little bump in the road that taught me a humongous lesson. I got a mountain of a lesson out of a bump in the pain, you know? Um, but yeah, so met my wife, we started dating, uh, and on our third date, I was like, okay, uh, I gotta be honest with her, like about this deployment. Cause like, it's, it'd be completely unfair to her to just, you know, spring it on her like the day before or whatever and be like, oh, wait for me. So I told her, like, I'm deploying. I'll do everything I can to deploy. Like, I have to do this. And uh, and I realized, like, this really sucks for you. And, uh, you know, so if you, if you don't want to, like, stay my girlfriend or any of that kind of stuff, I, I understand. And if you want to, like, look for other people or whatever, I, I get it. So um, she said she wanted to wait for me. So I was like, wow, okay, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe she's the one, you know, maybe this is real. And it's not just like, you know, an excited young man. Um, so yeah, we, I trained up real hard. I got put on a team to deploy kind of doing a non-standard thing from like most regular army units. Um, we were, we were supposed to advise Afghans. So my team structure was like very, very, very loosely based off of like how special forces operates in their team structure. And so basically we were trying to do, we were assigned to basically do their job at a very, very like reduced level. Um, so for anyone listening, I'm not trying to equate what I did to like, I know lots of green berets who are a lot tougher than me and I'm not saying I did their job. So take it with a grain of salt, but it was cool because there was so much rank on the team. There wasn't like, one officer and a couple senior sergeants and then a bunch of privates. You know, there was a lot of sergeants, a lot of lieutenants. Um, it was a very rank-heavy team of 14 guys. And so, like, everyone had to carry their weight. You had to cross-train on everything. I was a gunner half the time, which is, like, insane. Lieutenants are never, like, a gunner in a turret, you know? So I was a 240 gunner, a Mark 19 gunner, 50 cal, patrol leader, fire support officer for the company when they went and did, like, assault operations and stuff so like i got to do everything and so this is in this period because i had had this humbling experience at ranger school and i had all these men that i was deployed with who most of them had deployed at least twice most of them had deployed four times and this is 2012 so they they'd gotten after it pretty quick um man i just soaked it all in and not just army stuff like they taught me a little bit about life too you know because these guys all had families not all of them, but a lot of them, right? Most of them were husbands and fathers. And so, like, I really opened my eyes, too, to, like, okay, this is what masculinity is. It's not all just kicking and screaming and, like, acting tough all the time. Um, 
So it was for me, you know, I know a lot of people have deployed and have some really bad things happen to them. For me, it might be one of the best experiences of my life because it was something that I needed. Hurt little George needed to to start his path to actually being a man. Um, and I know that sounds kind of messed up to say it that way, but um, so to, to all those guys from Team Koa, like, man, I, I love every single one of them. Um, not because we risked our lives together, but because of all the lessons I learned from all of those guys. Um, I, just amazing, you know? Uh, so, yeah, deployed, got home. And this was like, there's no better feeling in the world when you step foot back into America and you, like, see America again uh, after deployment. And every veteran who's deployed knows exactly what I'm talking about, man. It's like, it's almost better than getting married and stuff, you know? It's like, I just can't describe it, but... uh it felt like I was going to have this fairy tale life now, you know, like combat vet, 101st. It's like this big iconic thing. And like, I'm feeling like, oh, I'm a man now. You know, I've done this hard thing and I proved myself. And I got the beautiful girl at home waiting for me. And we're going to get married and like everything's going to be great. So, like, I was super optimistic and I was just like so proud of everything and like thinking like nothing can get me down now. Um, so, yeah, we kind of rode that fairy tale for a little while. We, uh, I proposed very quickly after getting back, like within weeks. <laughs> and uh, we went to the county clerk's office here in Clarksville and uh, got married. After work one day, I asked my commander, hey, sir, can I leave early? And he's like, for what? And I was like, I'm going to go get married. And he was like, sweet, go, you know, see you tomorrow. <laughs> you know? And I was like, all right, sir. And uh, yeah, we, we rushed down to the county clerks before they closed. We, it was just me and her. And uh, his name is Judge Creek. I, I hope he's still alive. He's married like thousands of people here. He's a legend in, in the town. But uh, yeah, we got married and went and ate at a Longhorn Steakhouse to celebrate. And so uh, uh, we had talked to our parents too about this beforehand. We were like, hey, like legally, you know, like, if I like break my neck in training or something, she has no rights from the army to, to like do anything. Um, and so we were like, we told them, you know, we're thinking we're just going to go legally get married so that you know, if something happens or whatever, um, she can actually like handle our business, you know? So yeah, that was, that was part of it. Um, and then we planned to have the wedding like six months later. Uh, so it's kind of cool. We, we have like two anniversaries, our secret anniversary and the, uh, the wedding that Brandon, you were at. So, um, yeah, man, this, this stage of my life is just like super awesome. Like I'll, I'll always look back on it like really fondly because basically nothing was wrong at this period of my life. Um, we got married. It was this huge fairy tale wedding, super awesome. Um, and I'm trying to like, sorry, give me a minute. Um, Longhorn Steakhouse, if you're listening, we'd love a sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, we'll take a sponsorship <laughs> for that. So we we go back every now and then to that same one just just to like commemorate, you know. But uh, we made up for it with the actual wedding in Nashville. We went a little we went a little all out at the Opryland Hotel, but. Uh, yeah, man. So we got to a point too where um, we were like, "Hey, this will be a good time to start." We wanted to be parents. We really, we really, really, really wanted to start our own family, um, and we we were intentional about it because we didn't want to just like do it at a point where either I might deploy right away or I have to go to like a bunch of schools right away or something like that. Um, and so there was kind of this little window that we got where 
my job was going to start winding down, you know, I would be getting ready to go to the next place in the army and that would be school, but it's like you go to class in the day and you're let out kind of early and you're at home every day. There's no going anywhere. Um, you know, total gentleman's course, like regular school, not army stuff. Um, and so I was like, Hey, you know, this is probably a really good time for us to start our family because I'll be here for at least the next two years, most likely. Um, you know, and I'll be able to help out in those really critical stages where, you know, a lot of guys don't have that luxury. They, I mean, they don't even get to be there for the birth because they're deployed. So, um, so we prayed a lot. We, we really wanted a child and, uh, you know, God blessed us very quickly, uh, to, to get pregnant. And again, we were still just riding this fairy tales like, holy cow, you know, like we've got everything we ever wanted. We've got each other. We've got a baby on the way. Like I'm living my dream job, like doing exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and we were like so excited. And then, uh, the birth itself was extremely difficult. Um, I don't want to misquote how many hours, but it was like almost 40, I think maybe more. It was a very long time, like a really, really long time. So I know Dustin, you can relate to this to having like traumatic birth experience. Um, but it freaked me out, man. Like I thought my wife was going to die. Uh, like she hemorrhaged, they had to do a C-section and she hemorrhaged afterwards and stuff. And like her blood was so low, like the, the freaking alarms are going off and stuff. And yeah, it was a lot. It was a very taxing experience. Um, it was worse than deployment. <laughs> like it was very scary. And uh, it's weird too. You know, I guess it's because it's yours. It's your family. You know what I mean? There's yeah. something that just hits different when it's like your own flesh. And uh, I remember being really terrified with all these alarms going off and the doctor's like moving real fast. And I'm like, whoa, that doesn't look normal, you know? Um, so I was like trying to be strong and brave for her and everything. But like, man, after it all like was over, I like walked away and I like freaking broke down and like cried for a little bit. Cause it was just like this. I just had to like shed all of this weight okay. off of me. But yeah. so then, you know, Whitney was just like physically taxed and her body's like broken now from all of this. And, um, so we were kind of depleted from the get go. And, uh, she had severe postpartum and I don't think either of us really knew what to do. Um, and I'm active duty. Like I got to go to work every day. I can't just like not go in. Uh, it doesn't work that way <laughs> for those listening who don't know. You can't just like take the day off. It's like you got to take leave uh, or somehow like your chain of command has to like really move heaven and earth to like give you like emergency leave or something that you don't get charged for. So, yeah, I mean, like I had to keep carrying it on. And um, I was really naive to like, oh, she can just she's a mom now. You know, she's a woman. She can handle she's built for this, you know, and like. If I can go back and slap former George, I'd be like, dude, have some empathy and compassion, you know? But, uh, yeah, so those first several months were really rough. For uh, just, just, yeah, go ahead. Um, for the dads that are just having babies for the first time, what were some of the signs of the postpartum that really stuck out to you when you we first started seeing it? Um, I think the most shocking one was like my wife didn't even really want our baby like she didn't want to like nurse or anything it was like she just had no she couldn't find in, anything within herself to just do anything you know um and i was too naive i didn't know enough about this to really understand like what's going on like physiologically with her and uh yeah so i was just like i got angry because i felt like i was being abandoned mm. um it goes back to childhood stuff too. We'll get, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pull that thread here in a minute, but, um, 
that's probably the most shocking one. Uh, you know, se- massive fatigue. Um, so it's hard to tell, I think, initially. But I guess my advice to people would be, like, if you have a family member who can just be there or you have the financial means to, like, hire an in-house nurse or something like that, probably a really good idea, especially for first-time parents because, like, we should have... I mean, my, my in-laws live 30 minutes from us. I, and so, like, it got to a point where, yeah, Whitney was staying with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that just angered... I didn't know enough about this. It just angered me. Like, I don't get to have my own family in my own place, you know, and I got to drive an extra 30 minutes each way to to get to post every day for work and stuff. So, like, I was just so selfish. It was just, like, all about me and, like, how it's inconveniencing me and stuff. Um but postpartum, I think I'm not an expert on it. I should probably know more after having been through it. But honestly, it is really hard to remember anything from this period. It's like it was so stressful and just overwhelming and traumatic. We haven't even gotten to like the real bad stuff yet. Uh, it's really hard to remember like a lot. I like the the good things I pull out of this period was, you know, I, I we had like a little rocking chair and I would just sit and hold our daughter in my arms and I would watch football like all Saturday and Sunday and she would just sleep and sleep and sleep and I'd feed her and she'd keep sleeping. And, and it says so like, it was, that was like the only moments of calm, you know, like at all. Um, but so she was born in August and then in November we went, you know, I took leave to go visit my side of the family back on the West coast. Um, so they could all see the baby. So she's what, a couple months old now, four months, three months old. Um, and while we were there, uh, you know, my wife was still obviously still in the throes of like massive postpartum, but I was like, Oh, everything will be great. We're with my family and, you know, Thanksgiving. And I was just like completely oblivious to the fact that like she was at her wits end already, you know, before we even left. And so we flew across the country (laughs) and, uh, while we were there, uh, so she was not doing well and, uh, something very very traumatic occurred. Um, and that's my wife's story to tell. So I'm not going to share those details here, but the, uh, the outcome of it is that, um, it complete, like this fairy, the fairy tale ended (laughs) in this moment. And, uh, I just remember sitting there thinking like, how is this my life now? And it was, it felt very similar to like my parents got divorced and stuff. Like, how did this happen to me? Like I did all the right things I went to school, I went to college, you know, I, I played by the rules and all this kind of stuff and like kind of victim mentality, you know, uh, what was me? Right. And, uh, man, I just, all that anger again, all that, that angry teenager just came out and I was so mad at her, my wife, um, like vindictively mad, you know, uh, I, I, oh, man, I wish so much that I, was more mature emotionally because at a time when she needed her husband more than anything else in the world, I didn't give it to her. Uh, and that really, it really pains me to say that, but I got to be honest about who I was and what I was lacking in. And, and that is, uh, Oh yeah, that one, that's definitely one of my biggest failures in my life. Uh, sure. Well, with the, with, with obviously with the suffering comes, it creates the catalyst for change, right? So you're at this this low point, and you're well, definitely... it's not even the lowest point yet. 
Okay, so so let's yeah. go into that, and then let's talk about what what you did to start changing that, to start putting yeah. it in the right so, direction. So, so it was after all this, um, and I got to give a shout out to my my command at the time. Like I called them and told them what happened, and they gave me like a month. They were just like, just stay there with your family, take a month. Like how we'll just put you on emergency leave. We'll we'll work it out. Um, they, a lot of people try to badmouth the military about like, oh, they don't take care of people. That was not my experience. Um, for the most part, I had people who took care of me when I needed it. And, and I've tried to pay that back too, like with my own subordinates and stuff through, through the military. But, uh, so Sam Albahari, thank you to you. Uh, if you ever see this, um, you, you definitely were a lifeline, uh, for me when I needed it. But, uh, one, one of the best commanders I ever served for, uh, under, but, um, yeah. So after that, I was like, okay, you know, maybe I can't keep doing this army thing because, like, clearly, um, I can't, like, I can't be gone at work all day. You know, like, I've got to figure something out. So, um, that's when those seeds got planted of like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get out of the army. And I, I had planned on being like twenty, a twenty year guy, you know, at least, you know. And uh, so that was like a real big sudden shift. But it just felt like I don't have any other option at this point. And um, so that sucked because I really wanted to stay in, but. Um, kind of just made the, made the call like, okay, I got to get out. And so I, uh, worked through like a headhunting agency to get out. They work with like people getting out to like help them get into corporate jobs and stuff. And so I, I did that and, uh, fast forward to June of 2016, I ended, you know, I did what's called the ETS or, uh, as an officer, you refred, you resign your commission, resign my commission, started my job in corporate America. We moved to Texas. Um, and again, I kind of had that hope of like, Hey, the fairy tale will come back, right? We're, we get to restart our life at a new place and getting paid really well to work for this big corporate company. And like the army doesn't own us anymore. And I don't have to go train in the field for weeks on end anymore. I'll be home every night type of thing. And, uh, it was anything but a fairy tale. We got there and, uh, I don't even think Whitney was there for like more than two weeks, maybe three weeks. And we had a massive fight and I, I, basically just kicked her out. I was like, just move back to Tennessee, like get out of here. Like, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Um, I'm sure she felt the same, but she did. She drove all the way home to Tennessee. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, like, I just, it, to say that out loud, I can't believe that I even like said those things, you know, but, um, yeah. So we were separated for like four or five months. Um, and we'd only been married two years at this point. So like, like what the heck you know i was just kind of just so at this point i like went off the deep end um i had not dealt with any of my stuff i'd just been bottling all this up uh i didn't have guys like you really like we i knew you but we didn't talk like we do now we sure we didn't support each other like we do now um and i never would have admitted any of this to you back then that was too again if only they knew right they wouldn't be my friends if they really knew the, the real george and uh Man, I went off the deep end. So th this whole next like year of my life was just like, I was, I became the worst version of me. Um, I, we, we had, after the, the few months of separation, we were like, okay, look, we, we need to pump the brakes and we need to try and make this work. So we were trying to like save our marriage. She did move back, but I still was just like, I was so angry. Um, I had no compassion in my heart. I had no space to like realize that my wife was struggling and she's not doing this to me. She's barely keeping her head above water, you know? Mm -hmm. And 
to, I so like the thing is when you're thinking that way too, when you're so caught up in yourself, you start weaving these own lies to yourself and you start justifying things away. Like, well, I deserve this, you know, because she did this or whatever. Then I deserve that, right? Like it's this tit for tat mentality, this zero sum game. So like I got caught up in it. I did it. I did it to myself. You know, I built this prison of lies <laughs> that I hid in all the time and. Um, in the interest of trying to be brief, I, I got to the point where I um, I basically said, F it, like, I'm just going to live for me, you know? I, I was as selfish as I could possibly be, and um, I committed adultery uh, several times, and so I sinned against my wife, I sinned against God, I broke my vows and my covenant to my wife, and uh, I, like, got to this point one day, and I was just like, I don't even know who I am anymore. Like, this is not the guy. This is not me. Like, I don't do these things. This is not how I was raised. This is not my beliefs. Um, and I just hated myself, like, so much. And, and I've never really struggled with suicidal thoughts. But for the first time in my life, I was like, my Glock is in the other room. I could just do everyone a favor. That thought skated through my mind. And I immediately was like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. That's not an option. But that freaked me out because I was like, I've never even considered that. And I was like, okay, I need help. I'm a train wreck. Um, this is not good. I'm doing horrible things. And I, I'm either going to die or like I can't, whatever. Like, so if I had like a come to Jesus moment, finally. And um, yeah, so I uh, went to... Um, we had gone as a couple already. So before we left the army, we went to this place called Onsite. It's here in Tennessee. Uh, it's a very famous place, actually. It was like one of the, one of the um, pioneers in like different forms of therapy to to work through trauma. Uh, it's very experiential. So we you know we had a guest, Frankie, talk about that. Uh, he I think he's been three times, and so we went together as a couple. Um, so we don't we had we had some awareness now of like. What, really what our problems were um but we were still like not at a place where we could actually do anything about it because we were just still just we were treading water you know and uh you got to get up on the beach so you can breathe normal and then work on your stuff but um so i went back for for me just solo and uh it was that it was through that week that i admitted to my group that i had committed adultery and uh Leading up to it, I was like, if I say this, everyone in this room is going to think I'm the worst person in the world and they are going to shun me and just be so ashamed to even like have to be in the same group as me for the rest of the week, you know? And uh, the exact opposite happened, <laughs> you know? Like I, I admitted it and I owned it and uh, there was nothing but like just love and, uh, because they're all hurting people too. We're all hurting. And they and they just they had empathy for me and I knew I didn't deserve it. And uh so that was like the beginning of me um facing the music and accepting responsibility and actually taking action to make things better as opposed to just like making it worse, you know? And uh yep. so before I went home because we were still living in Texas. This is back in Tennessee, so I was back in Tennessee now. Um, <clears throat> family's back in Texas. 
I met with our counselor who we've seen for a de- over a decade um, now, but I went and saw her after. She also is a therapist at onsite too. So like she knew I was there and afterwards she's like, let's have an appointment before you fly home so that we can decompress everything and make sure that we're, we're setting you up to like heal your marriage. And so she gave me kind of the, the plan of action for how to tell my wife and, uh, you know, you have to hold your marriage in your hand and hope that your spouse uh, doesn't want to leave and uh, you can't, you can't grip it tight. You know, you have to, to be uh, humble. <laughs> yeah. You also have to protect uh, it. I mean, yeah. So she gave me the plan and uh, yeah, pretty quickly I confessed to, to my wife and uh, uh, that's the scariest conversation I've ever had. Um, Cause I was certain she would leave me. I mean, I would have left me. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of hurt, of course, and anger and frustration on her part. And I just sat there and took it. Um, and she, nothing she was saying was like out of malice. It's just that she was completely... Yeah, you grieved, grieved her. You know? right. Yeah, it's, uh, there's nothing worse I could do to her. It's the worst thing I could possibly do to my wife. And I did it. So I, I made no excuses. I told her what what I had done. Um, and you don't just like tell everything up front. Like you, you kind of work up to what's called full disclosure um, because your, your spouse won't be ready for that. You know what I mean? And uh, you would just crush them otherwise. So uh, yeah, that obviously set us back um, to say the least. But she... Um, she didn't leave. She said, no, I want to, I, I can't forgive you yet, but I don't want to give up on our marriage. And, uh, I want to work towards reconciliation. And so and I, and I told her this very recently because we've fast forward for, for part two, we've, we've experienced something pretty amazing recently, but I told her this, that through her, I've experienced maybe the greatest gift of God's grace, the most true reflection of God's grace and and the attribute of his grace, you know, like the divine presence of God's grace through her and through her forgiveness to me. Um, And I hate that it had to come from such a painful, terrible thing, but it's just a testament to like what God can do, right? So even in this terrible, broken moment, horrible moment i i've experienced a gift you know uh, just some of the most amazing and so you know now i've done the work and i have the appreciation for man like my wife gave that to me and she didn't have to you know and uh i'm just so overwhelmed with like gratitude and thanks for her and i i love her so deeply and i mean what an amazing woman you know what an incredible woman that she can find it in her heart, open her heart up to, to God's guidance and, and um, patience to give me a second chance. So, uh, yeah, that's, that was, uh, I don't think I've ever been more relieved because I was certain she would leave. So to have that was incredible. And uh, it, it was very hard still, of course. So the next several years were really rocky, really painful. Um, but we kept working on it. We kept going to counseling. And um, 
we moved back to Tennessee. We uh, bought our first home. We, we built a house. And uh, that felt good because we were back near family again. And, um, you know, my in-laws have been amazing. They, they help out a lot with, with our daughter. All right, we're going to break there, and that's going to conclude part one of my story. Stay tuned for part two where we're going to really dig into the lessons learned and what you can take from my story and apply into your own life to make it better. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all the support. We'll see you in part two. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes. We will see you in the next one.